0: Welcome back to Whitgift Conversations, the podcast where we talk to staff, to parents, and to pupils about topics that are relevant to you. Now, in this episode, we're talking to the Chair of Governors, Nick Edwards. Nick will talk about the benefits of having younger governors who are also in full-time employment, what makes the Chair of Governors different from the other governors, why people choose to commit time to being a governor, and how his job helps him to be a better governor at Whitgift. So come with me now as we speak to the Chair of Governors, Nick Edwards. Nick, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being here. How are you today? Thank you,
1: Simon. It's great to be with you. I'm feeling good. It's early in the morning, which is always a good time to get me. And I'm excited. This is only, I think it's my second or third podcast. And your intro has just told me that you're going to edit out all the ums and ers and make me sound great. So I'm looking forward to hearing the finished product.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Now, before we get into the main body of this podcast episode, I wonder whether you can just tell us a little bit about your own education, your own upbringing, where you went to school, and what your experience of school life was like as well.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I was born and brought up in Croydon, Sanderstead, which is uh, those parents that are listening, I'm sure most of them will know it, just outside Croydon. I went to a little primary school called Gresham, which I think is still there in Sanderstead Village until I was, I think, eight or nine. I went on to come to the house which, again, is still a very big feeder to Whitgift. And then I went to Whitgift. I went in the first form, so I was an under 12, year year seven, and stayed there my whole school life. I had a wonderful education. I was very, very fortunate. I played a lot of sports and was lucky enough to make some really good friends when I was at school. I had a great time at Whitgift. I ended up playing for the first team at hockey and at cricket. I uh, never quite made it at rugby. I was a bit too lightweight for that. And I had a great time.
0: And without wanting to give away your age too much, what sort of years are we talking about that you were there at the school?
1: So 1985 to 1992. uh, So that will will date me pretty accurately for most people out there. But yeah, look, I I had a a wonderful time at the school. I was very fortunate. I got a scholarship there. Uh, My parents would never have been able to afford to pay the fees if I hadn't have got one. My dad worked for Barclays Bank. And back in those days, there was a scholarship programme where if you were successful in getting a scholarship, you got 90% of the fees paid. So that allowed me to go to Whitgift. It also allowed my sister to go to Cromhurst so my parents could afford to send us both to private school. And I've been kind of very grateful uh, of that opportunity ever since. And it's one of the reasons why I've, you know, uh, decided to throw my hat in and and help on the governance side at uh, the school.
0: Awesome. So then in 92, I think you said you left the school. Did you go off to university at that stage?
1: Yeah, there was my tutor at the time was Peter Yeo, who is still very much at the school. And he was a very sort of central figure in my decision-making process around university. I tried to go to Oxford, but failed. Uh, applied to read PPE at Christchurch, which is one of the most academic colleges and one of the more academic subjects. So with the benefit of hindsight for someone who was kind of more middle of the road academically that was probably not the smartest thing to do uh, and Peter Yo encouraged me to go up to Durham have an interview there um, so yeah I read history history and economics my first year and a half and then swapped and did single honours history and loved it actually I, I, I was a bit of a sportsman so I didn't I probably didn't study as hard as I should have done and most people when they you know come out of university said oh I wish I'd you know done this i done that I didn't leave much behind when it came to having a good time and playing sports and so on. But I didn't really study very hard until pretty much Easter of my final year. So my degree was set up in a way that I sat, I think, seven of my eight papers in my final year. Didn't really do anything in the second year at all. So literally, I didn't really do anything in my second Mm -hmm. year. I just had a good time, wrote a dissertation that was pretty, pretty lousy. And then, yeah, studied incredibly hard from april through to june and in that period rediscovered completely my love of studying of reading and it, at that point regretted i think not doing a hell of a lot more with my university education the opportunity i'd got so with the benefit of hindsight i should have spent more time doing that because i really loved it i really enjoyed it and mm. i loved i did math english and history for a level and i loved english and i loved history and i was okay at math so it sort of you know got me through but yeah, so I kind of, probably my one regret at university was not realising that I went up there to read history, because I really loved it. And I didn't find that out until a bit late. But I stayed mm-hmm. up for another year, not, not to do, ha- having learnt that lesson, I stayed up to, for another year, sabbatical president of the sports union. So I was a paid, a paid member of staff of the university, which was incredibly good fun, but really rewarding as well. I bucket load, running running my own little business, sort of quarter of a million pound turnover, all costs going out, and a staff of four or five and a secretary and so on. So I learned loads doing that for a year and it was it was immensely good fun. I very, very much enjoyed it.
0: Now, I was smiling when you were answering that. And I imagine some of the parents listening to this might be smiling as well, knowing what that feeling is like when you kind of leave all your studies to the to the final year and then kind of cram everything in. I think it's very impressive, actually, to be able to cram it all in in that last term of, of your final year. So I take my hat off to you for pull, pulling that one out of the bag.
1: Well, I'm also hoping that some of the pupils would be listening as well. And will take heed of my error of my ways and not leave all their cramming until the last minute. I'm with my own kids, mm. uh, I'm hoping I can instill in them a sense of not leaving it to the last minute, but I suspect they'll be a chip off the old block and we'll probably do exactly what I did, but I hope not.
0: Okay, so let's talk about your role as chair of governors and in fact, let's first of all look at why schools have a, a govern a, a governing team anyway. W- what's the whole point of a school having governors?
1: I think we're there to to do a couple of things. One is to hold the executive to account. So the headmaster and his senior team is to make sure that they're doing what they should be doing. Uh, That follows a number of different uh, directions, but safeguarding would be pretty high at the the top of that list. The other is to make sure that we set the strategy. So we help think about what it is the school should be focusing on, help uh, help the senior team with what the future might look like. And we're lucky Mm -hmm. in our governing body. We've got a number of people from across the business world who've got a great deal of experience. It's also quite a young governing body. Most of the members of the most of the governors are still in full time employment. So they're all Mm -hmm. connected. We're also there as long term stewards. So trying to ensure that decisions that are being made in the short term don't have a detrimental impact for the long term because mm. headmasters, headmistresses might last 10 years, they might last 20 years, they might even last 25 or 30 years. But the school and the foundation that sits around the school has been there for, you know, 400 years and will be there for another 400 years on top. So we're trying mm. to keep mm. that long term perspective. So there's a number of different reasons for having governing governing bodies. but That's how we mm. think about it.
0: Of course, some schools might take a different approach and might say it's good having a governing team where where everyone's retired and they've got more available time and they've got more worldly wisdom. Tell me what what some of the benefits are, the fact that most of them seem to be younger and still in full time employment.
1: I think connectedness, actually, just understanding what it is that's really relevant for boys and girls in other schools and the foundation uh, and what's relevant to parents. You know, we're just much closer. I've got lots and lots of friends of mine who've got kids at Whitgift. Uh, I know what's, what they're thinking about. I know what's, what I'm thinking about. I've got a 12-year-old son and a nine-year-old daughter. So I know exactly what it's like to be a parent and what the challenges are. And I think that helps me and the other governors see things in a slightly different way. It does mean that perhaps we've got less time. You know, so we're, we're constantly, I think, on the fight to be efficient. So we're not wasting time thinking about things that aren't important. The meetings we have as governors are pretty focused. We split our our sessions into two every term. We have one that just deals with what I would say, the process and the administration of governance, ensuring that the committee meetings have happened, that the committee meetings are minuted properly, that we're looking at the output from those committee meetings and ensuring that we're making sure that everything has been done in the right way. And then we'll have two or three hours. Every term talking about strategy, thinking about the long term, what are the areas that the school should be focusing on, whether that's in respect of D&I, technology, Mm -hmm. sustainability, philanthropy, some of the cultural areas that the school needs to adjust and take Mm -hmm. uh, take account of. What we've found is if we don't divorce those two things, the process and the admin of being a governor just ends up squashing out some of the important conversations. And as a result, those, mm. those just wouldn't happen in the right way, either for long mm. enough or get the focus and attention of both the non-exec governors and the, and the executive team.
0: I, I love that idea of those meetings being focused. I'm sure all of the members appreciate that the focus as well in order to maximise on the time that you have and get the most from it uh, and not, not to be wasting time. Um, how many governors are there then in total?
1: That's a good question. I think we've probably got... 12, 13, yeah, it must be 13, 13 or 14 of the school. And mm-hmm. The, the structure is a little unusual in that we've got the foundation, the John Whitgift Foundation, which sits as an umbrella organisation and is the employing mm-hmm. entity, it's the legal entity above Whitgift, Trinity and Old Palace schools. So there's mm-hmm. three schools in the foundation. I sit as chair of the school committee and I also sit as a foundation governor as well. So technically I'm a governor at Old Palace and at Trinity as well. And a couple of the other Whitgift school governors will also share those responsibilities. But I think we've got 13 or 14. I'm just thinking about the, the size of the table. But we, because we don't meet physically mm-hmm. very often at the moment, it's quite hard for me to picture it. But I think it's about that sort of number. Mm-hmm. And we've got various subcommittees. Mm-hmm. We have a finance and estate subcommittee. We have an education and welfare subcommittee. We have a partnerships and community subcommittee. And then lastly an international subcommittee that sits and thinks about what we might be doing with respect to overseas relationships.
0: And do you find that being uh, a governor at Old Palace as well gives you a, a good insight, especially being a father of a son and a daughter? And then you've got the, the boys at Whitgift and the girls at Old Palace. Do you, do you think? Do you feel like that gives you a broader outlook?
1: A bit. I mean, I don't do as much there by any stretch of the imagination. So my involvement with Whitgift is very hands-on. So I speak mm. to the head there once a week, and then we have the specific meetings I've set out i'll only really get involved with old palace and trinity in respect of listening to the reports that they provide to the court which is the foundation oh. body uh, about how mm. they're doing generally but it does help i think to have that perspective across three schools because you're not aiming off against well what one school's doing you know, what are the mm. other how are the other schools performing how are they thinking about things is pretty useful we've also mm. got simon Reed uh, as a governor who's the head at christ hospital so we've got that touch point into a current existing head had a similar school to Whitgift who can give us a good perspective on some of the areas that are relevant to schooling right at the moment, and particularly in respect to things like COVID, that's that's pretty helpful.
0: So as chair of governors then, how does that make your role different to the other governors there?
1: Well, I guess the, the responsibility is with me for making sure that the governance process is smooth and I'm the interface between the governors and the headmaster. So that's the difference I I expect. What I do try and ensure happens though is that every single one of the governors feels like they've got a voice uh, and Mm. can say either to me offline or in the room when we're having governor meetings, anything they want. Um, So we run a very open shop, desperately keen to ensure that nobody feels like there are any hidden agendas, that there are no secrets. Uh, It's a very open and collegiate spirit. Um, so in that sense, I think all the governors are pretty you know pretty equal in terms of their approach, their feedback, the views that they have on on matters in respect to the school, but I'm the you know ultimately I'm the conduit to the head, the you know how things are going.
0: and I'm just thinking from the point of view anyone listening to this who might be thinking to themselves that that maybe they could apply to be a governor. not that this is an advertisement for that, of course, but if somebody was thinking that, what sort of commitment? in terms of time should they need to be making for this
1: it differs a little bit i think if you're chair of one of the subcommittees it ends up being slightly more time than if you're a governor that really just attends three maybe well six meetings a a year to a term um because there are there's a lot more to do in respect of setting the agenda for those specific meetings and attending those meetings each term and thinking about things so I hesitate to put a time commitment on because I started as chair uh, in January 2020 and I've been chair of the finance committee or was chair of the finance committee at the same time. Um, So that first six or nine months of 2020 was was pretty challenging with COVID and chairing two committees. So it's a bit difficult for me to actually think back and work out how much time it really takes. But it's it's probably a couple of hours a week, I would think, maybe three hours a week, something like that. Um, And then when things get more challenging that that can ratchet up quite a lot so it Hmm. can be a lot more but I would say on average it's about you know two three four hours a week something like that.
0: And what are the reasons that people choose to commit that kind of time to being a governor?
1: I think there's two reasons really one is the give back so I was incredibly fortunate with my education and i felt mm. like i should be doing something to give back and this was a really good way of doing so but that for mm. me was the driver i suspect there are also quite a few people who are you know making their way in their career who are thinking well i've got a couple of non-execs over here it would be good for my cv to be you know seen to be doing some charitable work and that's mm. absolutely fine it's pretty uh, you know that's great because actually those people are incredibly valuable and very useful to have on On governing bodies on any charitable body without Mm. that approach one would be well short of people who would be prepared to spend the time because it is quite a commitment Mm. but i think it'd be unrealistic Mm. to say that there isn't a little bit of that just as much as there is people who are trying to give back and you Mm. know help either their their school or a school that happens to be close to them geographically
0: and and i imagine that sometimes people come and people go how long how long is a typical sort of lifespan of being a governor
1: well we serve three-year terms uh, and you're not allowed to serve more than three three-year terms uh, so nine years is the longest period that one could serve although that has been you know breached on occasion and it's, it's it's kind of fine to do so by exception that would be the sort of the way of thinking about it but really it's, it's a three-year term and then if one wants to continue then one can carry on to another three years do another three years and we've actually mm. um, we've lost a couple, of, a couple of governors over the last two years, I say lost, that have, that have rotated off, if you like. There's always spots that pop up. And we're always almost, we're trying to find a blend of skills. And yeah, we're probably, we, we are probably a bit young, well, as I think about it now. But there's a lot of experience there, and, and certainly a lot of educational mm-hmm. experience. So there's a, it, it's a really good balance in the governing body.
0: Hmm, hmm. Nick, tell us a little bit about the work that you do when you're, you're not a governor. What is your day job?
1: Well, I work for a retirement village developer and operator. My background is as an accountant. And then I went to work in investment bank in corporate finance and then moved out of that to work in industry before moving to work for a private equity firm. And then I left there in 2019, mm-hmm. in 2020 and went to work for Audley. So we develop, we find the land and we develop, build and sell and ultimately operate retirement villages all over the UK. I've got about 20 of them and I'm Chief Operating Officer.
0: Okay. And how do you find that that helps you in terms of being a governor and Chair of Governors at Whitgift?
1: Well, I guess in my background finance. So I was Chair of the Finance Committee as the subcommittee at Whitgift for a while. So I'm I'm okay on numbers. So that's pretty useful. Uh, And I've got a pretty strong background in real estate which is also quite helpful when we think about mm. the master plan for the school, how we ensure that our estate is up to scratch, uh, including ESG. So the way in which we think about sustainability on the site, uh, and then more broadly for the foundation as a whole, as there's a care operation in the foundation too, which I get every now and again, I help out with, but I think most of it is mm. just about being current and in the flow of normal business life, actually. Um, you know, I, I think that's kind of helpful
0: and Nick I'm dying to ask tell us a little bit about your family you mentioned about having two children I think you said they're 12 and 9 how does a typical sort of weekend look in in the Edwards household
1: I suspect very similar to everybody else anyone listening to this call who's got young children part part taxi service um, part touchline running it turns out one one skill that I absolutely don't possess is being a very good touch judge having spent years mm-hmm. playing all sorts of different sports, I kind of figured that standing there on the sideline for under-12s football would be pretty easy. But it's about as stressed as I get in the week because um, they're just <laughs> at the sort of under twelve. Honestly, under-12s, you're at that point where some of the kids are starting to get a little bit aggro if the decision doesn't go their way. So you always, as a as a touchline bod, you're always refereeing... Your defensive line, and my son plays typically plays sort of centre back or you know, back of the diamond in the midfield formation or whatever. So he's forever waving his arms at me when he thinks someone, one of the opposition, is offside. So we end up with every now and again we have a slightly frantic moment on the pitch which ends up being a little bit difficult on the way home where he thinks i should have flagged someone offside who <laughs> either clearly wa either clearly wasn't offside or i was just daydreaming and they were and i'd missed it but either way just because mm. your son shouts at you he was offside you can't very well overturn the decision and go back so yeah so i'm mm. not very good i'm not a very good touch judge but yeah lots of running mm. around at the weekends my daughter plays hockey and netball and has just started horse riding as well my son seems to spend most of his time either playing football or cricket i um, i think he had three different cricket sessions this weekend and it's we're, we're in january
0: wow. bonkers really but yeah gosh so it sounds like you're a very active family then is that right
1: well, there's lots of running around. We've also got, we, when we moved out of London a couple of years ago, we moved to the Surrey-Hampshire border. So we've got some pigs and some chickens. Not many of them. We've only got a few pigs mm-hmm. and a few chickens, but they take a little bit of management. So, yeah, mm-hmm. weekends are full on, but it's great. I mean, if you go to bed on a Saturday evening or Sunday evening, feeling tired, having done all of that sort of stuff, it's. Uh, I, I feel like it's a life well-led. And, yeah, look, I, I, I still have time to play a bit of golf myself. Never quite as good as I'd like to be.
0: Well, it's awesome. That's, that's good that you get a bit of time to yourself there as well. Nick, we need to bring this to a close in a minute, but if anyone's been listening to this and maybe if they wanted to find out more about becoming a governor, how could they go about doing that?
1: I think the best way is to go, go through the school, drop an email into the headmaster or into his PA. Uh, that's the best way, to, best way to do it. I would say actually that over the last two or three years, we've had a number of approaches from people who've got specific skill sets. One springs to mind in technology a chap approached me as an alumni and said, look, I think he linked in and said, look, I'm an alumni. This is what I do. I'd love to get involved. And we've put him on a technology subcommittee because he's an expert in that, in that area. So there's always ways to get people involved uh, and we'd you know, love to hear from people who'd like to, it's, you know, it's a, a really fascinating environment. Education is to my mind. There's nothing more important and how we work as governors with the executive in the school i think is pretty critical Uh, supporting the staff to make the right decisions to think about the right things and helping everybody think about what the future might look like uh, is really important
0: awesome well look nick thank you for your time it's been really good talking to you it's been really good hearing what life is like as chair of governors thank you so much thanks simon so that was chair of governors nick edwards at whitgift thank you so much nick for joining us on this episode of the podcast really good to hear all about being a governor at school now that's it for this episode our next episode is coming out soon but in the meantime thank you for listening to this one don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch and we look forward to seeing you next time bye for now